Ted Hope. Thank you so much for coming on Scene by Scene with Josh and Dean. My pleasure. Yeah, again, Ted, thank you for doing this. You're one of the interviews we've been waiting to do because you're the guy who made this movie happen. That's right. But I seem to remember you telling me your first job working in film was as an assistant to director writer Alex Cox on Repo Man, which is one of my favorite indie films of all time. But you're best known for producing independent films by like Hal Hartley, Todd Solondz, Ang Lee, Ed Burns, and many others. 70 films and counting is the last time I heard, but it could be more. You're currently the Amazon Studios film production chief. Would you please give us a little background of your career in making movies? How did you start and what had you produced before American Splendor? Ah, I don't know if there's a short answer to that. So, you know, basically, I guess the short of it was, uh, you know, a little bit of good fortune, kind of two times over. I happened to move to New York City in like 83, I think it was. From where? I moved from Oregon at the time. I'd been working for Ralph Nader out there. Oh, wow. And I had dropped out of college previously and then in a belief that politics was going way too slowly for my pace, I decided I needed to dive deep into people's brains, hearts and minds and uh, and applied to film school. I forgot that. And luckily, I received a uh, invite from NYU to come with a nice scholarship and financial aid and, and moved out. And the good fortune was like that was the year that indie film hit New York City. So I had saved up my money. I was living pretty much spoon to mouth at that time, but enough to buy one ticket to the New York Film Festival. I wanted to buy a ticket to Stranger Than Paradise, Jim Jarmusch's Mm. debut, but I knew it was going to open the next week. So it didn't really feel prudent to spend the extra money on that ticket. So instead, I bought a ticket to this thing that was described as a... uh, blood-drenched James M. Cain tale. And it happened to be Blood Simple, the Coen Brothers movie. Uh, And I'd seen them around, you know, quite a bit uh, on the street. You know, didn't, you know, they were a unique trio because it included Fran McDormand at the time. And, you know, so when they walked out on stage, I was like, holy cow, I know who those people are. They shop at the same green grocer at 2 a.m. in the morning as I do. (laughs) And then like just right after that, when I went to see Stranger Than Paradise, trying to go in, I felt like I was virtually assaulted by this guy that was uh, handing out flyers to see his movie. And the weird thing was I sat down in the theater. It was an old movie theater in New York called Cinema Studio around 66th Street. And they showed a preview And it was a preview of that same guy selling socks. It was Spike Lee. (laughs) And then two days later, when I took the subway, I lived up by Columbia and went to NYU. And when I took the subway downtown, the doors opened and Jim Jarmusch was standing right in front of me. And that kind of close proximity to just the people that were getting the movies made the kind that I had dreamed of making, you Mm -hmm. know, just gave me so much courage and hope that we could get our movies made, the ones that were similar but different. So that was like a key launch. It just fortified me. But probably the, the best thing that happened was 
I lived on 111th between Broadway and Riverside, and my building went co-op, and the other tenants and I organized, and so the landlord first offered us $500, and by the time we went through, and granted, like, our water got turned off, and the heat got turned off, but you know, it didn't take that long, maybe six months. And he paid us all 50 grand each to move out. So that was like the gift I needed because it allowed me to pay off my student loans. And right. if I hadn't paid off my student loans, I couldn't have been a production assistant for three years, you know, and just find my way around and decide what I wanted to do. Along that time, I started developing a few scripts. I had the good fortune of meeting Hal Hartley who was the first person that I, you know, really got to produce. And I could keep taking jobs that were about learning as opposed to just paying the bills. So I was able to improve my skill set and my confidence level. And, you know, and people saw me more as a producer than just another PA. So you never had the dream of like writing and directing your own movies? I mean, I know as a producer, you're kind of doing that. No, absolutely. Like when I was in film school, I believed I was a director. And Mm -hmm. along the way, I just felt like I didn't really think in all those levels that I wanted to at the complexity and with the amount of soul that I wanted to do. And I felt like I could have been a great hack, you know, (laughs) but I, I couldn't be an auteur. And that's the kind of cinema that I love. And I realized along the way that because I did, you know, I may not think in a hundred directions at once, I may not be able to make split second decisions. You know, that's what directing is so much, you know, decision-making in the manner that, that I wanted, but I could help go deep. I could help make sure the right things were considered. I could help make sure that everything showed up on time. I could help weigh the repercussions of all the choices. And, you know, somebody said to me along the lines, like there's so few people that really believe in both the art and the business and, you know, getting excited about just how to organize, how to make something happen. That's what I had done back in the day when I worked in politics was organize people on a campaign, you know, have a timeline and a common goal and lots of diverse tasks, but make sure it all fits together like a jigsaw puzzle. I had a skill set in that. So, all right, just to respond to that, it sounds like you've you've always been like a grassroots kind of guy. Like you weren't as interested in, let's say, Hollywood production style, but more on the grassroots street level of making movies. Yeah, I think that when I went to film school, my dream was to make like American movies that felt like the French New Wave, but had like a punk rock edge, you know, and we're really about this moment in time that we were living in. Right. So when we first met, I remember we discussed comic books because you liked them and I made them. In fact, you hired Dan Clouds to illustrate and design the poster for Todd Solomon's Happiness, which you produced. And you even asked me for some of my Billy Dogma comics for the Happiness movie that never made the final cut. Do you remember what you needed the comics for? I always suspected it was for a newspaper prop, the one that the pedophile's son's friend vomits onto in the morning after kitchen scene. Is that right, or do you remember? We have to get to the bottom of this mystery. (laughs) (laughs) I think it was actually for a scene where Dylan Baker 
you know, ends up buying some teen boy mags to his character, buy some teen mags to masturbate to. And Mm. it was to be on the comic shelf of it. That scene didn't, you know, instead we just uh, cut to him in the car with the magazines. Got it. And then when I was your assistant during the making of Ang Lee's The Ice Storm, I remember organizing scripts at your home and coming across unproduced screenplays for American Splendor and Yummy Fur, which was based on Chester Brown's comics anthology. Where were those scripts from and, and had you been developing them? The American Splendor would have been the one that was generated off the play that was, you know, shows up in our movie. Right. And that was basically just a series of vignettes of, of original Harvey Picar stories that weren't really related to each other, right? Exactly. Wow, that would have been such a different movie. But yeah, you know, I've always had a big love, for lack of a better term, you know, underground comics, like still... One of my regrets was, you know, I had a chance to come aboard Crumb, but I gave Terry Zweigoff an edit note that he didn't agree with and, you know, case closed. Wow. Jeez. (laughs) God, I wonder what that edit note was. It was uh, to cut out the leg show sequence in the movie. When he crawls through the the tunnel of the different women from uh, Leg Show. Oh, that's right. What was your point of view on that? I felt like it was going to, you know, bring too much to the surface, you know, Crumb's affection, let's say, for, Mm -hmm. you know, and and his perspective on on women in that. But Terry felt it very important to capture warts and all. But Terry, you know, still like one of my favorite moments was Terry did invite me when I was living in San Francisco to have dinner with him and Crumb. And they both brought new records to uh, show off to each other. And it was quite a delight. Oh, that's cool. So this kind of brings us up to me discovering those scripts at your home, us having these discussions about comics, having given you comics in the past, possibly for movies. And then I'd love to hear your side of the story of like what encouraged you to produce American Splendor the movie. Uh, I know that I had talked to you about that, but I just want to hear it from you. Yeah, I remember we had shared our mutual affection of, of Harvey's work. And, you know, I always had a dream of it. I Like the way I imagined it initially was that just like in the comics, you would have different directors do the different segments and they would be done by different actors. That was kind of what sat with me initially. Huh. Oh, wow. What an interesting idea. And I never, I never pursued it fully. And then... Through you, Dean, Joyce, you know, called me one night and I remember, you know, it must have been like around, what, 1999 or something, sometime like that. And she's, you know, she, it was late at night. I remember it was dark out and she was just like, do you want to option my husband's work? And I was like, what, huh? Who is this? And, you know, I came to realize it really was Joyce and she, you know, she told me what she wanted and I thought it was a fair price and it had been a big dream of mine. So I said, sure, let's do it. And it took forever, right? Harvey and Joyce didn't have an attorney. So I I had to get them an attorney to, you know, make sure that their side was well represented. And then... (laughs) 
the next phase of, uh, as I recall, like Harvey wanted to write the script himself and he wrote it while he was at work at the VA and he would just fax through. There used to be this machine called the fax. <laughs> yep. I like remember now, it well. now we don't believe in the fax, right? <laughs> That's right. It's a fax free world. But they had a machine that was called the fax and it sent through <laughs> paper through the telephone wires. Yep and would spit it back out in a visual representation of it. And Harvey would write the script in longhand on yellow legal pads and just send them through. And, you know, he didn't have great handwriting. So, you know, it was a challenge, and we would have people in our office, you know, convert it to script format. Mm -hmm. That's what I did with Harvey's scripts when he would send me his faxes of stick figure scripts (laughs) for me to draw. So it seems like this is a common theme is that people have to reformat his scripts, various types. (laughs) (laughs) I wish I still had those pages, you know, and it just kept on going and it didn't really have that much of a form. It was pretty close. People would realize that it was pulled from the pages and then they tried to find the comic strips because the, the handwriting was more legible in the comics than they were on the page. You know, did he give you an overall like structure first of what his idea no, was? No, no, not at all. So it wasn't anything similar to what you ended up doing. No, not at all. It was just stream of consciousness, but he, he knew, you know, some good episodes. I think he did help very much select what some of those episodes were. Cause I, I had like a full stack of the books, comics, and, you know, would, would put stickies on the different stories that I thought would make in the work in the movies. And definitely some of them, you know, came from those pages at that time. But it was funny, like Harvey had some way, like I, I remember he had some way of learning who everyone was in the office. Right. So Whenever he would call, he would get the person's name and he would start to talk to them and he would find out what they were interested in. (laughs) And there was like a story, like it was early days of of cell phone service and different guys in the office would call each other and pretend they were Harvey because he would call them. (laughs) <laughs> and just start talking to them, like teasing them about how the Mets play, you know, like wanting to talk about music if he knew they liked music. And so these couple guys in the office would, you know, punk each other, pretending to be Harvey and doing it. And then one day early, like Saturday morning, like 8, 8 a.m., I'm pretty sure it was Glenn Basner who had been my assistant for a while, now runs, you know, super successful producer now, runs a company called Film Nation. And the, his, it's like 8 a.m. and he's on the subway and there's no cell phone service in the subway in those days. And somehow his cell phone rings, like the, it reaches, I guess, a clear moment in the sewer line or something. <laughs> so he actually gets reception and it's Harvey. And he thinks it's this other guy, Dan Beers, who worked with us <laughs> pranking him, pretending he's Harvey. And, and like, he's like, what the fuck? How can you call me, you know, on the on my cell phone in the subway? It doesn't work in the subway. And it, of course, was Harvey. But Harvey had that way that he would get close. He didn't ever meet these people face to face, but they all knew him. He knew them. You know, he was working it. But, like, I had this option, you know, I think for about two years, and I couldn't figure out how to make the movie. I brought two directors on the film, and they both walked away. They just felt like it was too intense to work with Harvey that close. 
Was one of the directors the director of American Movie? You know, I don't like to talk about people who didn't make movies. Right. Okay. Know, okay. But um, it's not a bad guess. Oh, but, thank uh, you. <laughs> so, Ted, I just have to interrupt because I'm sure Dean told you at some point that the whole way that he got hooked up illustrating for Harvey Picar was through a series of similar calls where he thought I was punking him and pretending to be Harvey. <laughs> So this is obviously a theme that Harvey inspires in people who connect with him. Harvey's magical. I, what was your first conversation with Harvey? What was it like for you to talk to Harvey? Once Joyce let you. I remember talking, yeah, I remember talking to, like, the first calls were all with Joyce. And then Harvey, you know, had lots of ideas on the movie. You know, he did feel close to folks who had tried to get it made before, and did like champion that possibility, could they still stay involved? And there were conversations, but I never really felt it was the right thing. You know, like I was struggling to figure out what that was. And, you know, Harvey would, you know, he was captivating to listen to, but it wasn't his form. And, you know, I just like, hmm, I don't see that as a movie, Mm -hmm. Harvey. You know, and I knew it was going to be a kind of bootstrapped indie production. And like, because we got stuck, I remember we we went up to see Harvey and Joyce and brought a video camera, myself and uh, Anthony Bregman, who was a partner at Good Machine and since gone on to produce great movies like Eternal Sunshine Mm. of the Spotless Mind and other films. And we videotaped them. We didn't do it particularly good because we weren't filmmakers, but uh, i.e. cinematographers or directors. But in filming him and Joyce and Danielle, it became so clear that this movie wasn't wasn't the Harvey Picard story. It it was the family. Mm -hmm. It was the story of a guy who thought he would never have a family and through the most unlikely means, you know, writing, not drawing, writing comics about his own life as a VA file clerk and on the mean streets of Cleveland, basically got a family. And that was the structure. And so after two years and, you know, you know, spending some money when I couldn't afford to spend money on development and I came back and I was like, look, like the only way this movie is going to work is, is if it's like a hybrid film that the real Harvey's in it, that I actually found ideally like a couple that had a background in documentaries, but also did some form of unorthodox biopic, you know, like that's the ideal documentary with a biopic emphasis in like narrative biopics couple that's what i need i need to find that right and it's kind of like you know you raise a super high bar you say it's impossible but the next day bob and sherry bob Pacini and sherry springer berman walk into my office to they had a meeting with ann carey oh my god who was a, another partner at good machine producer who did can you ever forgive me last year and i see them walk by and i'm like holy cow those are the couple that did Last Days at Chasen's. They wrote a, a script for Escobar, the space age bachelor pad music musician mm-hmm. and uh, that I read and liked. And I was like, that's them. That's who I need. So when they were exiting, 
I like ran out of the meeting I was having. I had a stack of American Splendors that were all, you know, marked with with colored stickies on the episodes that I wanted to do and kind of numbered out, you know. And I was like, hey, do you guys know who Harvey Picard is? Have you ever read American Splendor? And they were like, what? Huh? <laughs> and I was like, take a look at these. Like, I think there's a great movie there. And by that point in time, I had already got hold of the Letterman episodes. Like, I think it was like the super early days of the internet. Yeah. And I was able to find places to like trade or buy those tapes, which were all forbidden, which came in super handy later because even the Letterman people didn't have those tapes. They were, quote, so forbidden. But I, I think it just gave them the comics at that initial time and then later gave them the the videos. And it felt like it was the next day. I don't know if it really was, but they called back and they're like, this is incredible. We want to do it. That's fantastic. That's you know, you yeah. know, you're making me think about like, so was this already, you, you had optioned Harvey Picard's life story for about two years. And this is about a year and a half into, you're still trying to crack it. And you had, had initial thoughts about doing it anthology style with different actors portraying Harvey with different directors directing scenes to put together this anthology idea and that didn't work. And then when you finally decide to videotape the real Harvey and Joyce is when you kind of went back to, and then you discovered that they, the story was about a guy who had a vasectomy, you know, that wanted a family. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then you decided oh my, when you saw Sherry and Robert walk in the door, you saw a, a, another couple that could possibly put this together with you but you still kind of kept the hybrid because the movie turns out to be a hybrid of like traditional filmmaking, documentary, animation, and you're also breaking the fourth wall at one point. Yeah. The hybrid thing really came like once I spent time with Harvey, you know, and watching those videotapes was like, you have to, to understand that this is about a story about how he believes he's perceived. And, how, and frankly, how other people perceive him, you wanted that balance of the actual and the performance, you know? And I think it was not only so important for him, but also like how, you know, to see, you know, that, that Judah Friedlander's performance wasn't, you know, that far beyond what the real Toby was, yeah. you know? We just interviewed Toby and Judah, and Toby even said that, Judah did a better job of doing Toby than Toby does. <laughs> very funny. It was important to Harvey at that point as well to be in the movie? No. You know, Harvey was a little like, I think he was charmed by the whole thing, but he, he was also reluctant, I think, to fully get involved. Right. But he ended up like hanging out on set, you know, because Therese Dupre, the great production designer that did the film, used a lot of Harvey's actual stuff and right. we took his couch and you know his records and all this other stuff and so during lunch you know Harvey wasn't sleeping too well because his regular napping spaces were taken so Harvey would come into the house we were filming in and just lay down on his couch and take a nap <laughs> <laughs> wow that's great how did you put your creative team together once you knew who the directors were because it's everyone seems to be firing on all cylinders to make this movie happen. Uh, it was just the, you know, the, the perfect moment in so many ways, you know, that, 
you know, both Terry Stacy and Therese Dupre and Ann Golder, who cast it, were veterans of many of our productions. I think Terry Stacy shot more movies for me and Therese designed more movies for me than, and Ann Golda cast more movies for me than any other folks in those positions, you know, in that day. And I think we all, you know, came from humble backgrounds, but with a, you know, deep love of art, you know. So Harvey had, you know, his story spoke to all of us, I think, in a big way. And, you know, and Bob and Sherry were super exciting to work with, you know, so. Mm -hmm. Can I just ask about the actual elements that made it into the script? Because you were talking about how you'd been going through all your old copies of American Splendor and putting stickies on the stories that you wanted to include. And was that like, so one of the most fascinating things about doing this podcast has been searching out and realizing, you know, what were the stories that were the basis of most of the scenes, especially early on in the film. So were most of those the ones that you originally had highlighted and Sherry and Bob took those and then, you know, found the script in there from that? Or did they end up finding some more of their own and switching other ones? How did that all evolve? I'm sure they, I'm sure they added to it too, you know, like, Memory is one of those tricky things. Like in, in my mind, absolutely, I picked every single one of them. I'm <laughs> sure that's not the case. <laughs> but, it, you know, it's that kind of thing that all of it felt inevitable at the time. And mm-hmm. you know, what was remarkable, you know, like, uh, you know, just some of the other things that happened. Like uh, I had funding from another producer initially, but I knew that he didn't really like the project. It was private equity. He didn't quite get it, mm. right? And I, I'm pretty sure, yeah. He, he. Anyways, you know, I then had Bob and Sherry. I just met Maud Nadler, who was an executive at HBO and was doing their indie films. And she too had come from humble roots and had like kind of a similar approach to the world that that I had. And I knew that she would respond. And literally, you know, when Bob and Sherry were going to L.A., I was like, you have to go meet Maude. Maude called me, and she was saying goodbye to Bob and Sherry while they were leaving. Like, she picked up the phone (laughs) at the end of the meeting, called me, and basically said she was going to do it. And she greenlit the movie on their first draft, you know? Wow. wow. And was she the producer who was whose job mandate at HBO was to find films relating to everyday work, uh, like working people's lives? Was that what her mandate well, not was? Quite. Like, but she did, like, I remember she did Cheryl Donier's, uh, I think it was called Girl Inside. It was a female prison movie. She did Real Women Have Curves. Mm-hmm. You know, like, it was real people's stories but i don't know if that was her mandate okay you know i I don't know that but like we all wanted to do that Mm -hmm. you know so so and it and it fit and she made it clear that she wanted to do it and you know it's amazing to think like greenlit on a true first draft and they did one more draft and that's what got nominated for an oscar wow that's incredible and how involved were you in the script like at that point like by the second draft had they taken your baton and ran with it kind of thing, the directors? Yeah, I, I, 
wouldn't even uh, give so much as like my baton. It was Harvey's baton. You know, they knew well enough what dialogue to keep, and they knew, you know, when when I said I wanted to include documentary footage, they had such a great approach to it where, you know, they knew enough that couldn't be scripted. So they're like, we will interview Harvey about jazz music, and we will interview Harvey about Crumb, and we will interview, and they just put those slugs in. And we really didn't know what we were going to get. Mm. And they were able to manage, you know, like, because they also had documentary background, they were able to see opportunity when it was happening in front of them. So they had intent, but not necessarily planned how some of the transitions would go. So whether it was the jelly beans and the hands and, and... Toby talking about the pina colada beans and, you know, pulling off off the set or getting, you know, Judah and Toby and Paul, you know, and Harvey all to talk like they were on it. You know, they were aware and in the moment to see what was happening and make sure that we could adjust to it. But the script had like the encouragement, the script they wrote had the encouragement to do that. But then they had to do the execution. That's so cool. Yeah. Sometimes you're on set and you shoot a scene or a take and you know you've got something special. And that scene in the movie where they cross over between the actors and the real people is such a risk. And it, and it brilliantly pays off. Did you know you had something special at that moment when you shot that day? Oh, yeah. We were psyched. But we're also like, you know... I think it was a 25-day shoot. I can't quite recall. Like, it was greenlit at $2.5 and, you know, and then they gave us more money to kind of keep going and license the music and do the animation as we did. But, yes, you knew we had something great, but you didn't have any time to celebrate because we had to keep moving and get, you know, get the next mm-hmm. thing. That's right. So a couple other questions. Was Paul Giamatti your first choice to portray Harvey? No, I, I, there was pressure. Like, even though we were doing it for two and a half million, we had pressure to cast a star in the film. You know, so there were folks that HBO liked and we liked, but they wouldn't audition for the movie. They weren't like huge names or anything, but they, you know, had total indie cred and, and Hollywood cred. And, you know, since so much was not just like how somebody captures Harvey, but how they actually add the next layer of performance on Harvey. Mm-hmm. Bob and Sherry were right to, you know, stick to their guns and insist that someone audition. And that was like a riff, mm-hmm. right? Because like we could have cast these other folks had we been willing to let them, you know, just give them an offer. And Bob and Sherry knew that wasn't enough. And Paul was like, hell yeah, I'll audition. And he delivered this incredible audition that won him the role. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. you couldn't look at it and not say, like, this is the guy for the movie. Like, everybody was into it. And it went up. Colin Callender was the head of HBO at the time on the creative side. And it was, like, done. How would an actor audition, unless they'd seen the, the David Letterman tapes yeah there was the letterman stuff you know you have all the comics 
you know, like, and you get physical, they all capture, you know, physical sure. stuff. Sure. You know, and how about Hope Davis? Yeah, Hope, Hope, I remember we didn't secure until relatively late in the game. Like, it was, it was hard. You know, I had uh, been involved tangentially on a movie that Hope was in. I, you know, I knew her work. I really dug her, thought she was absolutely great. And I think originally it was Sherry's, you know, idea. And because at that time, everybody was like, you know, she she's the ingenue. She's so attractive. Like, how could you cast mm. her as Joyce? <laughs> you know, and so the, the idea, you know, to do the hair and and she just stepped right into the role. Yeah. You know, and I, and I think it's like all of it is just like a testament, like, you know, people willing to take chances, finding people who are willing to go deep, who, you know, are in it for the right reasons. Yeah. You know, there was so many chances too. like, you know, it's so funny because some of it is reminds me of this of where we are today and like streaming and movies and all of that. But HBO I think had had only done one movie for theatrical release before this. And prior to making that first movie, they had said yes to a project of mine and they had said they would release it theatrically, but they wouldn't put it in the contract. And the director walked away and wouldn't make the movie. Hmm. And we had the same thing here where all we had was like the corporate promise the individuals that, yes, we saw this as theatrical and we trusted them, you know, partially because when I said to, to Maude Nadler that this film was going to win Sundance and go to Cannes, she trusted me too. How did you wow. know that? Was, that was my <laughs> next question was, tell us a little bit about what it was like going to Sundance Film Festival and what happened there. Well, like... You know, there's definitely a chapter before that that's kind of important. Oh, please. Which is when we finished the film, I guess like for some reason, I forget why, but Harvey and Joyce were going to be in New York. And we had a cut of the movie and we wanted to screen it for Harvey. And we didn't have the money to screen in a screening room. And he ended up, you know, watching it in, I think, my office, you know, on a monitor and afterwards, he was depressed. He was like, yeah, I guess it's okay. Like, he, he really, it felt like, oh, shit, he's not happy with the movie. Mm. And, you know, Harvey, like, as people know, was, you know, manic depressive. And, and he'd gone through a tough spot right before that. And he was in a tough spot after it. So when the film got into Sundance, you know, Harvey didn't really know what that meant. You know, but he was glad that people would finally get to see it. But when he walked into that screening room, I don't think he had much expectation. So, like, it was cool that Al Gore was there. You know, he liked that. But, like, right. it was in the library theater at Sundance, which is very homey. It's like you're in a high school auditorium, right? <laughs> but the nice thing is the seats squeak, floor squeaks, and so when people laugh, you really kind of hear it. You kind of have that community feeling. Mm. And after the screening, like there was a big standing O. And when Harvey stood up, I literally 
saw 15 years just fall off his shoulders. Wow. Like he was taller. He, he was full of vigor. Something had changed. You know, and when you think like this guy had, you know, thrown himself down the stairs and had been in a dark spot so recent mm-hmm. and all of that went around way. And like, I think he wrote like six or seven more books and, mm-hmm. you know, and just that whole lift of being loved and admired and recognized. That's what he wanted. He wanted recognition. Yeah. And that the fact that we got to bring him to Cannes. They won another prize there. I just think it's like one of those rare opportunities where you get to witness how a work changes somebody's Mm -hmm. life. That's beautiful that you gave him that, Ted. And I know that doing work was really important to him and getting stuff published and the amount of work he was able to do after the movie. We even brought American Splendor to DC Comics, and I did the Quitter with him, his origin story at DC Comics. Yeah. But I do wonder what it'd be like. Imagine if at that point in the rough cut, you did have the retirement ending, right, where he retires from the VA, right? And yeah, everyone... I think that was like, even like, uh, like day two. That was like one or two, like really early on in the shoot. So imagine like watching kind of your life story and then – that's it. You're done with work. What happens next? I'm wondering if he was also feeling that. Like, wow, there it is. There's my life, you know, in two hours. It must be such a strange feeling, even for a guy who spent about 30 years telling every minute, quotidian detail about his life. And the power of cinema, too, you know, that he's probably confronting as well. I think that in some ways, like the challenge of when you do that on a page is you never get to have that feeling of how it affects somebody in the moment that they're reading it. Right. Yeah. But when you're sitting there in a movie theater for the very first time, so nobody's carrying any expectation, right? They haven't been told this movie is great yet. You know, they haven't been told that it does something distinct. Mm -hmm. Part of the movie going experience is so much often about how the audience has been primed. But in that Sundance theater, in the first, second, and even third screening, you get this truly honest reaction in the moment as people are feeling Mm -hmm. it. And Harvey got to feel that about his work. Mm -hmm. And I think it had to be special, too, that even though, like, I think people are always embarrassed to see themselves up on the screen that, you know, it was him in this unique form that he presented of the illustrated memoir. Yeah. Was the graphic novel collection Our Movie Year something you had a hand in? No, other than encouraging it to happen with HBO. You know, that was like, he quickly got that deal and everyone gave permission. There was no blocking. Right. I have one question again, about the structure of the film, because it's the one element of the movie that felt a little bit at odds with the ethos of honesty and truthfulness that Harvey, you know, so much embodied, was the decision to conflate the character of Frank Stack, who illustrated our cancer year, with Danielle's father, the Fred character. And I would just love to know sort of what the thought process was there. I think it's very obvious that it was efficient for storytelling reasons. Yeah, I I think, you know, precisely that 
And I would say that's, you know, Bob and Cherry's, you know, intelligence and, and knowledge and that. How do you fit this all into a contained movie? Mm-hmm. One of the challenges, I think, is the more you play with form, the less opportunity you have, I think, to make things narratively complex, right? Yeah. Because audiences can go in one direction, but it's hard to go in both. Mm-hmm. So keeping it, it simple, that was key. And, you know, they sparked on that quickly and it felt right. And ultimately, because you did want, I think particularly because it was Danielle and she's still a child, you wanted to distance it from the reality a little bit. Right. And actually, Dean made a really good point because I know that Frank Stack, the actual illustrator, you know, was was a little bit um, not thrilled (laughs) about people confusing him for being a drug addict. But Dean made a good point that James McCaffrey, the actor who was cast as Fred, was probably the most good looking guy in the whole movie. So, you know, (laughs) they can feel a little bit better. You know, it's funny, like just thinking about, you know, how what all feels like clear intent couldn't have happened without a studio and executives who encouraged us to stretch, right? Yeah. So like four different ways the movie could have gone wrong, Mm -hmm. but they end up being super strong things. We didn't know how we were going to do the animation, right? Yeah. We knew we wanted it so we could act it out, but we, you know, I, I don't think Gary was involved in the beginning, I'm trying to think of where he came in, but I think it was relatively late. But like the whole scene of Harvey slash Paul in the void in the white yes. you know, room, like we didn't have that, you know, fully mapped out. And, you know, we needed a studio that gave us money to spend, you know, it wasn't much, but to do the visual effects and the animation. Yeah. I actually just spoke to Gary about this project and he was just glowing about how the team that you assembled was so great and everybody trusted each other. Everybody was on the same page. He found it so easy to work with Sherry and Bob and of course you and, you know, everyone else so that his creative outlets were opened and, you know, firing at full cylinders when he was working on on the animation. That's awesome. That's awesome. And, you know, also... The music, like that was all temp. Harvey picked a lot of the cues, like these were his favorite songs. Mm -hmm. And Bob and Brian placed it in there. And when we first screened it for Colin Callender, he loved it. He said, what would it cost to license this music? And I think it was like three hundred and fifty or $450,000 that we didn't have. And he said, go for it. Mm. Wow, that's great. And... We were struggling in how to get into the movie. Like, we loved that opening scene that Bob and Sherry scripted that wasn't from the comics with Batman and Robin and, you know, I'm Harvey P. Carr, lady. Mm -hmm. But we still didn't have, like, a title sequence that kind of showed the form of the film. Right. That kind of communicated it. And again, like, HBO came through and helped us pay for what was that title sequence, which I think is just an awesome sequence, mm-hmm. you know, just super imaginative. But that, we didn't know that going in. Like nowadays, so many studios expected everything to be, you know, to be declared. And without making the movie, we wouldn't have necessarily known what to do in any of those instances. And then 
That's a great Perhaps point. the most daring, like those three, four, the most daring thing was we didn't have the rights to the Letterman stuff. Mm. Right. We knew we wanted to use it. We had the tapes, right? We were in dialogue. Worldwide Pants, Letterman's company, was super supportive of Harvey, but we were shooting and we didn't have that cleared and it was written into the script, right? So if HBO didn't have the gumption, you know, it's kind of amazing that they let us go. And we worked it out. Now, they didn't give us everything. I remember, like, they were like, well, what you're asking for is on these forbidden tapes. Mm -hmm. And I said, I understand, you know, and, you know, we wanted to get the, the masters to them. And they said they don't even exist. And the person who was working with us was on our side. But they were like, we don't have these tapes. No one knows where these tapes are. We don't even know what's on them. I said, well, I have copies of them. I'll send you the copies so you have them. <laughs> you know. But in the end, they didn't clear those pieces, which also was such a gift. Because that moment where we go from the real Letterman to the fake Letterman. Yes. And the, the real Harvey to the Paul Giamatti is also a key moment that came out of necessity. I also noticed in that scene that you reversed the camera to look at the audience and to the camera crew. And as Paul Giamatti's version of Harvey, portraying Harvey, like giving this declaration and what he feels like, it's not shot on them necessarily. It's shot. It's the people responding to it. And I thought that was a brilliant way to portray that scene. Kudos to Bob and Jerry. That was great. I also love that since you were the guy who brought in the David Letterman tapes, that you actually play the voice of the Letterman producer in the film. It's perfect. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> One of my only cameos ever. Well, I have two very different questions to ask to help wrap this up. Always good for a quickie. All right. <laughs> um, and Ted, before I ask you the two questions, was there anything else that you wanted to talk about? Maybe, you know, never before revealed secrets about making the movie or something you dare not speak that you will tell us and our listeners anything like that <laughs> you know my my fondest memories are like literally coming back from lunch and having harvey asleep on the couch you know like he, he would have put a record on you know <laughs> it might be just stuck at the end playing over and he'd be sound asleep you know that to me was priceless and you know like the people that were like record collectors uh, on the crew would go out with Harvey on the weekends and like everybody got close to him. And that was just, you know, fabulous. I kind of think that, you know, how does something click? How do people give you that gift to, you know, to, to reach when you don't quite yet have it in your grasp on how you're going to execute and I think some of it comes down to the fact that, you know, we shot this in October, November, November and December of 2000. Of 2001. 2001. Thank you. Yeah. So it was right after 9-11. But when 9-11 happened, we were like, are we going to go forward? It was like literally, I think maybe three, five days before we were supposed to go prep. And I was ready to like, just say, we can't do it. Like we, we were devastated and Bob and Sherry were like, we have to, this is all the more reason we have to go forward and make this. We have to keep it all together. Mm. Mm -hmm. And I think that 
you know, what whether it was just like the trauma, the knowing how easily things are lost, how important creative endeavor of all aspects, of all levels, no matter how small, you know, is important, that we got this team that really was like, at the key point, everyone got great work after that. You know, Michael Wilkinson, the costume designer, went on to do the Avengers and all those things. And mm. and <laughs> that was like the first or second film he designed. And Terry went out and shot some great movies with like Curtis Hansen and others. And like everybody was working. Therese when did 25th Hour. And, you know, everyone was just at that peak moment of top of the game and ready to transition into a higher level of film. Mm. HBO was willing to take big chances. You know, it was a small movie, but we were all in the right place. And, you know, I don't think I've seen a movie since then that had a sole producer credit on it, um, as a matter of fact, too. Wow. You know, like everything after that was always, you know, five or six people on every movie. and. Well, it clearly came from your heart, a lot of this. You you enjoying Harvey Picard's work, his comics, understanding it well enough, and creating this lightning-in-a-bottle kind of milestone movie. Mm-hmm. If you've been listening to podcasts, we can't stop lauding it and how incredible and how it's still ahead of its time. Thank yep. you, guys. Thank you. It's a beautiful piece of work. I'm so glad you're doing this. Well, thank you. And so I guess you kind of answered one of my questions, but I'll ask it last. One quick question, and sorry to put you on the spot, but maybe you have a sentence or two for this. You clearly have an eagle eye for filmmaker talent, especially auteurs, you know, writers, directors. But the movie making and distribution landscape has changed dramatically since you first started. You even wrote a book about your personal experiences that came out in 2014 called Hope for Film. For aspiring filmmakers listening to this podcast, what kind of advice would you give them pursuing making movies in 2019 and beyond? Just a little question, right? (laughs) You get asked this every day, Ted. Come on. You have 20 seconds. Go. I think, you know, if you go back to my origin tale that I shared at the beginning, you know, a lot of it was the good fortune of being in the right time at the right place. But along the way, key different points in my career, I was able to observe something that the quote-unquote experts uh, of the time couldn't see because they were stuck in the legacy bias of their preferred way of seeing things, right? So I think that the most of that was the reality that art and artists and audiences all move faster than business or markets, right? Like Mm. growing up in a capitalist world, we like to think that the markets, you know, really are the most efficient thing. But I think there are always people that are far ahead of the curve. Some of them are perhaps a little too much on the bleeding edge, but others have something that everybody, or at least a core group also wants. And I think we need to stay open to that and trust our own instincts that perhaps this thing that we hunger for and the lack of satisfaction that we have that from the particularly from the cultural industrial complex 
that's delivering, it's not wrong that we're not being satisfied with it. Mm. And it's all precisely those that are in it, you know, that, you know, are touching it with their hands and walking on their feet and breathing it and, you know, rolling in it. They get it and they will find a way to get it made and get it seen. And I mm. think that it's never necessarily just whatever the business form is, that finding that right alignment of content and form is so important. Mm -hmm. And that's what will allow people to embrace it and, and call it theirs. And some things have to happen first before there's a Facebook, there's a MySpace and a Friendster and a you know global village and you know yeah, and they, everything gets built on the backs of others at all times. And, you know, for that everything to fit, you know, it takes the entire world to spin for one leaf to fall, right? Mm -hmm. That so much has to happen to get it right. But that's okay. You know, that yeah. really is okay. Because at times there are those things that shine. I so remember beginning when... A girl I was seeing told me that there was a great, you know, that because I liked underground comics and they were hard to find. She said, oh, there's this great head shop downtown just south of Canal, like where nobody goes. And it was there that I went in that they had a whole stack of American Splendors. And I wasn't looking for American Splendors, but I sat there and reading them. And I read that story of Harvey when he's depressed and almost about to commit suicide and he's on the beach, you know, and he decides like it's okay to keep going. It's, I still see it in the to this day, of like it's just him sitting on the beach, the whole strip, you know, it's probably, uh, it's probably like 12 panels, maybe more. And he just decides, like, it's okay. He just sits there and watches the waves, you know. And it just hit me. And I used to give that story, I gave it to a couple of friends, you know, because it, it was such a perfect little poem of, like, persevering despite, you know, depression and the circumstances one finds oneself in. And it hit, right? And so often... You don't need to make your work for millions upon millions of people, right? You, you need to make the work for the people that respond to it and will be influenced with it and who will allow it to inform their work. And that will go forward and we'll see that legacy. That legacy is, you know, what culture is. Mm -hmm. You know, it's your story is embedded in my story and my story is embedded in their story. And you see each of those steps. And I think that's like the important thing. Like we've gotten, I think, like so caught up in success and how things resonate and how many people they reach and how many likes we get and mm -hmm. how many followers, and all of those different things. Where in the end, it's much more the intensity of feeling that it summons in just the few core people. And that's what drives things forward, you know. How did Harvey write so much? How did he keep going? I don't have an answer to that, but I'm sure glad that he found the answer himself. Wow, that's beautiful. I think we're going to end right there. I was going to ask you, what do you miss most about Harvey Picard? But you've already answered it, and it's it's beautiful. And, and thanks for that mantra about perseverance, you know, finding your audience. I think you're absolutely right about that. Thank you, Ted. 
Ted, thanks so much for being on Scene by Scene with Josh and Dean. All right. Thank you guys for doing this. <laughs>